Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So here we are in week seven of Romans, and this week we're in Romans chapter eight, and I'm going to be honest with you right up front, right from the get-go, this should be four weeks of a message by itself, because Romans eight is packed full of a lot of theological depth, a lot of doctrine, and we're going to do our best to highlight the, the heavier parts and then cover, uh, so to speak, the rest of it so that we get a, at least a, a, a basic understanding, hopefully moving forward, of Romans chapter 8. This is probably my favorite chapter of the Bible. Um, I say this often. God doesn't have favorites. I do um, when it comes to scripture, mind you. Here's how this works. Uh, so this is the uh, just an incredibly rich chapter. And so rather than doing some recap, we're going to jump straight in so that we can kind of keep moving forward with this. The first thing today, as we get started, the very first point, like I said, we're jumping straight in, is freedom from condemnation. Freedom from condemnation. So, so Paul starts this portion of this chapter with a statement that is a therefore. And so obviously that means we do need to look back a little bit at what precedes this moment. And so in, here's kind of, I guess, the recap. In, in, in chapter six, uh, Paul said, hey, uh, we're no longer slaves to sin. We've died to sin and now we're in grace. Therefore, we no longer have to be controlled by sin. We're no longer bound to the sin that once uh, held us. And so he said, we are not, not free to sin. We are free from sin. So we, we stand in grace, which means now through the resurrection power. And we said this, that, that too many of us live with the, the grace of, of forgiveness of Good Friday, but we don't walk in the power of resurrection Sunday, right? And so, so we make that transition from I'm forgiven to I'm free, right? And so Paul says, we no longer have to be bound by sin. We are free. And then in chapter seven, he moves forward. So he says in chapter six, there's not a license to sin, but to live in righteousness. And then in chapter seven, he says, it's not a legalism and that we're bound to keeping of the law and the weight of the law. And because the law, what does the law do? The law condemns. So the law's penalty of not keeping the law ultimately is death. And so we said the, the law then arouses sin within us uh, and it makes us aware of the sin that is in us as well. And so we, so we see this last week. So we said it's not legalism. It's not this, this weight of do's and do's and don'ts and, and, and make sure you keep this and that. But we are now freed from the weight of that, but not freed from the righteousness in which we have now taken on in Christ. So we choose through the grace of God to live a life sinless and to walk in righteousness. And how do we do that? Equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to talk about the power of the spirit-filled life, so to speak. And what does it mean to be a believer? And what now do we walk in as we are empowered? And so he says this, therefore, because of everything that we've just talked about, all of this argument, we are now free from condemnation. So here we go. The very first four verses in Romans 8, Verses one through four says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. This is good news. This is very good news because apart from the work of grace, our penalty is death. And when you read this all throughout Romans, the wages of sin is death. We are condemned by our sin. But however, because of Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what you need to understand. It doesn't say that there are no mistakes. It doesn't say there's no failures. It doesn't even say that there are no sins amongst Christians, right? That is not stated. It doesn't say, therefore, you are a Christian. Now you will never sin again. How many of you go, I must not be a Christian then. That must have never happened in my life because the Lord knows I am, like Paul said, I am a wretched man, right? So, so we see this and he's saying, no, he's saying there's no condemnation, that the penalty has been paid. And because of that, you are no longer condemned because you are in Christ Jesus the law condemns, but the believer has a new relationship to the law. And we talked a lot about the change in relationship from sin and law. So he cannot be condemned. All of this is based on the statement in Christ Jesus. That's the, the, pit, the pivotal point in this first opening verse of this chapter is that it's for those in Christ Jesus. This isn't to say that there's no condemnation to all people because of the work of Jesus Christ. No, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is, again, hanging on the relationship aspect of our connection to Jesus and our relationship in grace, right? If salvation ever becomes a work that was done for all and therefore covers all, then Jesus is lost in salvation. It's our relationship to him. In the second verse, um, we're free from the law of sin and death. Um, You have a life now in the spirit. See, see, the law of sin and death is what Paul describes in in chapter 7, right? We talked about that a little bit last week in Romans 7, uh, 7 through 25. And it says, uh, but the law of the spirit here is life. So there's a shift again, a change yet again and relationally. See, we're seeing this whole transformation that almost is instantaneously uh, and yet progressive at the same time. And it's this continual work, right? We're justified. And then this continual process and work of the spirit in us through sanctification that we see now through the spirit empowered life life, we are, are freed from the law of sin and death, and we can walk now in the spirit of life. And I'm trying to be judicious in, in what we cover. But verse 3 says, I gotta get back to it. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. And, and, and Christ suffered the condemnation for you and I. Yeah. So we have to understand that, that now the fact that we step into this new life with Christ and this new relationship with Christ, that the condemnation aspect is now removed because of the work of Jesus Christ. He took the penalty for us. He bore our sin and death on the cross. He carried it. And so when we step into relationship with Christ, we then now spiritually are, are avoiding and do not go through the punishment of condemnation. Now, our physical body does die. 
right? That's the reality of it. Our physical body does die because this world is still under the realm and control of the law, right? Therefore, the world is under condemnation and and sin is still prevalent in our world. Therefore, we are still subject to pain and death. And we're going to talk about suffering and and the the hurt of the earth and the world that we live in in a moment. But but he says, listen, the the law of double jeopardy, and verse four kind of covers this a little bit. And he said, the requirement of the law was fully met in us. So who, you know, we don't have to go through that condemnation process. So the law of double jeopardy says this, nobody can be tried twice for the same crime, right? And so in the same sense, Jesus died on the cross. He took our penalty. He took it for us. He bore the condemnation on himself. Therefore, when we step into Christ, now we have, it is now we step into his death, his burial, his resurrection power, and we are now free from condemnation. Because we will not be tried again. Because we talked about early in the book of Romans that, that all of us will go through this kind of moment of judgment as we sit before the Lord. And, and this record of, he says, don't you know you're storing up wrath for yourself, right? And we went through all of this. And he says, but now when you step into Christ, what was your reality has changed because now the reality is covered by grace and you are made righteous as Christ. So you take on that righteousness so that when you step in before the Lord, all of a sudden the condemnation has been removed, the penalty has been paid, and you've stepped into grace. And that should make you excited to go, man, I no longer have to fear or worry condemnation because my salvation is in Christ. And because of the work he did, I no longer have to be condemned. But I want to make a clarification. There is a difference between condemnation and conviction. So we have to understand that because a lot of times people go, well, why do I feel bad for doing things in if I'm not, if I'm not under condemnation anymore? And I'm like, well, be glad you're not under condemnation because that is like e- eternal damnation. That is death and, and, and it's not good. Conviction is the work of a loving father to draw you back into alignment, to say, hey, come back, come back. Let's get where we need to be. Let's get where you need to be. And it's the work of the spirit saying, hey, 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 hey. This, is, this isn't right. And you feel those things and you go, I know that this is wrong. I know what I'm doing isn't right. And, that, and that's the Holy Spirit going, then let's fix it. Let's make it right. Let's make it right. So don't, don't, don't misunderstand or misinterpret. And I've heard people go, well, well, you shouldn't feel conviction anymore. And it's like, no, 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 you should. Uh, because that's the work of a loving father saying, hey, let's, be, let's come into alignment with the word. Let's be like Christ. Let's be the man or woman of God that I am calling you to be. So there's no condemnation, but conviction is a good thing. It's a good thing. So you don't want to be free of conviction. That's not a good place to be. That's a, not good, right? You want to be in a place where the spirit is, is pulling and drawing and saying, hey, let's correct, let's realign, let's fix. The second thing is this. It's free from obligation. We're free from obligation. There's freedom from obligation. Verses uh, five through eight. It says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God or at war with God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. Here's what we're seeing. We're not seeing a, 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 a contrasting between like a, a super saved person and a barely saved person. No, no, no. We're seeing like, we've discovered that. We've discussed that a little bit. Like either you are or you aren't, right? It's kind of this, you're never more saved than anything. Okay. 
So then what we're seeing here is the difference between the saved and the unsaved, right? The, the lost and the found, so to speak. And so we're seeing this, this parallel where Paul is saying, listen, if you're in the flesh, then your pursuit is the desires of the flesh. If you are pursuing sin, you're not going to be able to please God. You cannot do it. It's impossible because your pursuit is selfish. Your desires are selfish. What you're longing for is, is self-seeking and self-pleasing, right? And then he's saying, but those that are in the spirit pursue the Lord. And in that, what do you find in that? You find peace. There's peace. But apart from that, you can't please God. So there's some, kind of some contrasting thoughts and statements here. In the first, in verse five, it says you have in the flesh versus in the spirit, right? And the unsaved person does not have the spirit of God and lives in the flesh and for the flesh. His mind is centered on things that satisfy the flesh, right? And we know these people, we've met these people, and we maybe were once those people, right? And we know the difference between who we are now and, and who we were then. And we see the, 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 the differences and we go, man, that's so true. I was, I was selfish. I was all about me. It was this and that. Even if that wasn't the way I tried to portray myself or the personification of who I was, was a selfish, on the inward and on the inside, it was like, man, I want this. I want to do this for me. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care, right? And you see this, this desire to please the flesh. And it says, but then you have the person on the other hand, who is in the spirit. And the Christian, the believer, has the spirit of God. And, and, and it's that, that indwelling that comes with salvation, the spirit of God within the lives in an entirely new and a different sphere, right? And it's this whole change in relationship again. Now his mind are on the things of the spirit. This doesn't mean to say that the, the unsaved person never does anything good or the, the saved person never does anything bad. Uh, but it's, it's not the norm. It's just that the, the, the saved person versus the unsaved person, one is bent towards the Lord and the other is bent towards the self. And then in verse six, we have this contrasting of death and life and the unsaved person is alive physically, but dead spiritually. The inner man is dead towards God and does not respond to the things of the spirit. He may be moral and even religious, but he lacks spiritual life. He needs the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that's where true life comes from. When your spirit life is, is vibrant and you are alive in Christ and you're no longer dead to the world around you, and to the, the, the spiritual world around you and what the Lord wants to do. All of a sudden you spring to life through the spirit. The next contrast we see is, is at war with God and at peace with God. And this says they're hostile towards God. That means at war with God. That's, first of all, a scary place to be. Let me just go ahead and tell you right now, you will not win that war. Uh, it, it doesn't end well for any person who is trying to be at war with God. And that can be, that can be on so many different levels. Hear me, that can be on so many different levels. One of the stories that I think of is my father, who was a, a, a saved man, a believer, and was fighting against God because God had called him into the ministry. But he saw it and said, it doesn't make enough money. And he had this plan of being a millionaire by the time he was 30. Uh, just update you on that. He didn't make it. All right. So I'll just, uh, just let you know. Millionaire by 30, that came and went a long time ago. It did for his son as well. So uh, you see, so, so, but, but here's where he was. He was at war with this, this, this fighting and trying to, to suppress this idea of, I'm going into the ministry, I'm going to do this. And he was actually found himself working, loading a truck. And he's just loading this freight liner and he's just 
putting everything in and they have to be just right because it's got to be balanced and all this kind of stuff and this whole process. And, and God is wrestling with him, right? And, and so he has this, even this moment and the Lord said, fine, if you're not going to do what I have called you to do, I'm going to withdraw my anointing from your life. And this is a brief moment. And my dad said he had never felt so distant from God in his entire life. And he said in the back of that truck, he just falls to his knees and begins to cry and say, God, I'm sorry. I will do what you called me to do. And I wish I could say, and then he walked off the truck and started, no, it's not how it went, but it was a process, right? But it was that moment of surrendering to the Lord. So again, this is even, I'm just saying that if you're at war with God on any level, whether that be in the, 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 the basic and the most beginning levels of save versus unsaved, like, no, I'm going to do my thing and not do at any level. God will win. You, you don't win that battle, whether for your good or for your detriment. You don't win that battle. But when you're with the Lord, you're at peace with God. And that's a, that's a wartime, peacetime. It's like, that is where you want to be, is at peace with God. That means anything else in this world can go wrong. Anything else in this world can happen, but you're at peace with God. And then in verse eight, it's that pleasing self, pleasing God. To be in the flesh means to be lost and outside of Christ. And the unsaved person is rarely thinking about pleasing God. They may think to please others and they may put, they may have some of those, but it's never the desire to please the Lord, right? It's in that relationship with the Lord when we're alive in Christ through the spirit of Christ Jesus. And so when we're alive in that moment, it says, now my heart desires to please the Lord. I desire to please the Lord. It's that transformation. It's that change. It's not just a, a moment of, of I'm going to, I'm just, I want to do good today. No, no, it's that continual drawing of the spirit within us. that says, I want to do good for the Lord. And that's not that, it's not the legalism side that says, I'm going to be good because I have to be. No, it's, it's, I want to do right because I want to please the Lord. And I have this burning desire within me that says, oh God, I want to please you pick up in verse nine through 11. It says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. So this is a good thing, right? He's like, you, you were lost, but here you are. You're not there now. You are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. And that's a lot. And I understand it's like, did I follow every bit of that? And that's okay start with verse nine. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. First thing, litmus test, so to speak, for salvation. Now, there's no like way to actually like go and check. There's not a meter on our physical bodies that goes, is the spirit there or not? Like, right, we can't like push a button and like a little light comes on or like you push a button, it's like the wrong color. It's like, oh, you had a red light. Um, 
we need to talk about that. The spirit's not dwelling, right? But, but what Paul is saying is like, how do we know of our salvation? How do we, it's just the spirit dwells in you, right? That is, that is the kind of marker and the indicator of salvation is that Paul says, listen, that is what we know is that if the spirit is in you, then you are in Christ. If it's not in you, then you're not in Christ. And so you go, man, why do I struggle all the time to kind of try to do good? I want to do good morally. I have this desire to do good. And you go, man, have I fully surrendered to Christ? Have I really given my heart to him? Have I really allowed the spirit to come in? and dwell within me and say, okay, then I want to be like Christ. So that's kind of the first thing is like, listen, when you ask Christ into your heart, you receive the spirit. But if you've never really made that, that commitment, well, he's going to this kind of this back and forth, like, you know, this is, this is where it is. You know, you have to have the spirit of Christ in you. In fact, whenever the spirit comes in you, and we see this kind of through these verses, that there is a shift and a change in your experience in life. One of the uh, evangelists, D.L. Moody, Uh, described his conversion experience. He said, I was in a new world. How many of you met these people where it's like radical transformation? And you go, wow, that was visibly evident, right? And he says, I was in a new world. The next morning, the sun shone brighter and the birds sang sweeter. The old elms waved their branches for joy and all nature was at peace. Life in Christ is abundant life. Life in Christ is abundant. I have a brother-in-law who his life was radically transformed. He was a wretched man, so to speak, right? And you see this change in his life that all of the sudden, it is a whole new world. And you talk about excited for reaching the lost, excited for telling people about his whole life changed, right? And it's that, that incredible moment where, whoa, God is so good, when everything prior to that moment was the exact opposite. It was like, I'm going to run as far from the Lord as possible. I'm going to do as much for myself as possible. And then he hits that wall and he turns. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm running as far in that direction as possible. Now I'm going to run towards the Lord and seek the Lord. And that's that experience of the spirit-empowered life and that spirit-filled moment of salvation. Uh, Romans 12 through 8, 12 through 17 um, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. This is where I said we're freedom from obligation to the flesh, right? And then here's where our obligation is. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. We're freed from that obligation. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I say this, it's not enough for us just to have the spirit. The spirit must have us. It's not enough to just go, mm, I've got the spirit in me, but it's to say, okay, I am fully given over to the spirit. And I surrender all that I am so that he has me. Only then can he share with us the abundant, victorious life that can be ours in Christ. We have no obligation to the flesh. 
Think about that. Paul uses the word obligation earlier in the book of Romans as just this, this weight of need and not just a sense of, oh, it's something to do on my calendar, but the weight of need. He's like, I'm obligated to share the gospel. I'm obligated. Like, I just can't be done with it. I have to do this, right? And now he uses that same word and he goes, we have no obligation to the flesh. You can be done with that completely. You can put that away. He says, our obligation then is to the spirit. We have no obligation to the flesh. We do have an obligation to the Holy Spirit for it is the Spirit who convicted us, revealed Christ to us, and imparted eternal life to us when we trusted Christ. He is the Spirit of life. He can enable us to put to death or to mortify the sinful deeds of the body as we surrender the members of our body to the Spirit. He applies to us and is in us the death and the resurrection of Christ. Walking in that resurrection power of the spirit is how we put to death our sinful nature, our flesh. And we walk in this abundant life that comes from the spirit. The Holy Spirit is also a spirit of adoption. Lauren and I, and I've shared some of this for a moment at times, but we were foster parents for a short while. And while we were foster parents, uh, we fell in love with two wonderful babies that lived with us for four months. And they were a difficult four months, but some of the most rewarding and life-giving months to us in the end as you sit there. And, and this became real to me, the spirit of adoption, right? And the desire to adopt these babies was, was there. Uh, and they, they were adopted then by an incredible aunt and uncle who have given, given them a great life. So this, you know, hear me, understand we still are connected and it's wonderful. It's great. It's not common, but it's just a wonderful thing. But, but in this, this part of God's heart was revealed to us in a new way. When all of a sudden you go, okay, this child had no hope in the future and where they were headed in the life that they were living. And now I get to bring this child into my home and I get to love this child and I get to pray over this child. My parents would take them on Saturday nights as we would get ready for service the next morning. And my dad would get up early and walk and hold the little baby. And his name is Jack. And he would just pray and pray over Jack while he walked and just calling out, you know, things that would have never happened, right? Apart from being able to have them in our home and a part of our family. So understanding the heart of God through this adoption. And all of a sudden it was, you weren't my child and now you are. And now we didn't adopt these children, but when they were in our home, you better believe they were our children. And you want to talk about just the same parental instincts and all of those things and the desire to protect and the desire to love and to care for. And I'm going to do what's best for this child and I'm going to fight for them. Even if that means fighting the system or whatever it may have been, right? We were going to do all that we could for this child. And we were there praying and interceding on behalf of this child or these children. We felt the heart of God at a new level and his desire to call us his children. The word, uh, the spirit of adoption, the word adoption in the New Testament means being placed as an adult son or as an adult child. So it's not this sense of uh, you are placed as, a, as an infant who has no abilities. So and that's kind of the understanding. So when you're a baby, you cannot walk, you can't speak, uh, you can't make decisions, um, you don't draw from family wealth, right? Because you're a child. 
And, and you've got to grow and you've got to mature and you've got to learn. But in this understanding of adoption that we see here in Romans is the fact that you come in as an adult. Uh, and we see that a little bit uh, played out in this, this thought of being led of the Spirit. It's so we, we have the ability to speak. We can cry, Abba, Father, right? We have the ability to speak. We have the ability to be led, which means we can walk. And then we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, which means we get to draw on the vast riches of all that is our relationship with Christ and all that comes with him as adult children in the family of God. Watch my time. The third thing is this freedom from discouragement. Freedom from discouragement. And and I'm going to, I'm going to read this quickly, verses 18 through 25, um, because we're getting close to the point that I really want to hit home, right? The, the, The part that we really want to talk about today. So verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the choice, I'm sorry, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but the hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? I love Paul's like just sense of sarcasm in the moment just then. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here's what we see. In this world, there will be suffering. The Christian life is not a guarantee to an easy pass and a free pass, so to speak, that you get to just walk through and breeze through without any struggle. And we already today, we prayed for Sam and Kilanda. There's suffering. There is pain in this world, and that is the reality. And, and it doesn't make it easier just being able to be aware of it, but nonetheless, it, it, does, it does help us to walk through the process of going, okay, I can trust the Lord through this, right? And so, so there will be suffering. There will be difficulty, but the reality is we can manage and walk through it because we know that the future glory that awaits us is far greater and far outweighs all the pain and all of the suffering that we've ever gone through on this earth that in the moment we enter into glory, all of the sudden, every ounce of that goes away and all of it is forgotten and we're overwhelmed by the magnitude and the greatness of the presence of the God that's before us. See, so we, we, there will be suffering, but oh, listen, hear me, it's okay because one day we will be in glory. And creation groans as in childbearing, right? In this moment of waiting and longing for the children of God to be revealed. And, it, it, and I'm trying to move quickly here. So, so it says, we too in our spirits, we groan with creation, right? It's just those that we, we feel the pain, we know the pain, and we long for this, pre- this future glory that is to come. It's this desire to say, okay, God, one day I don't have to endure this anymore. One day, but in the meantime, while I'm here, let me be all that I am for you. Let me do all that I can do for you. And moving quickly, like I said, I want to jump to um, 
portion in, in verse 26 through 30. Um, and now in, in Scripture, and you may be aware of this already, there are parts of Scripture that not everybody agrees on. In case you weren't aware of that, be aware. There are parts of Scripture uh, that not everybody agrees on and that there are some parts of Scripture that some deem more difficult than others to fully process and understand. And there are some things that have caused uh, denominational divisions and have even caused church splits and whatnot. Here's what I'm going to tell you right now, right up front. As we walk through difficult passages together, there is freedom in this church to disagree. And we can still love and serve the same God for the same purpose. Because at the end of the day, I'd rather major on the majors and minor on the minors. Uh, and I'm not going to major on the minors. Does that make sense? So we're going to walk through this. And, and as we do, there may be some disagreements. And you know what? I welcome those. And I would love to have conversation and dialogue with you. Not necessarily an attempt to persuade you, uh, but to help you to fully understand why I believe the way I believe and the way I interpret it the way I do. Is that fair? And at the end of this, you could, we could still love each other. Right? This is a good thing. Um, so we're going to jump to verse 28, and then we'll speak back on 26 and 27 as we walk through this. And so Romans 8, 28 and 30, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That one we're not going to have any issues on, right? I think we're all going to be like, oh, this is good. This is a good thing. God is working for us. Even in the midst of all the difficulty, he's still working his plan through it somehow, right? If, and if, you, if we want to disagree on that one, that's a longer conversation, I guess. I don't know, but we can have it nonetheless. But I feel like we should all be pretty unified there. For, and this is, where, this is where interpretation and understanding can also get crazy. Right here, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So again, Verse 28, we look back and and Jeremiah tells us this. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God has a plan, right? God is is working a plan. And so he sees the good, the bad, and all of those things. He says, you know what? I can use this, right? He goes, I mean, he may look at it and say, this isn't how I originally planned it to go. This isn't what I really wanted. But he said, but I can work this to be a good thing in your life. I can use this uh, to work for my glory, right? Because the hope in the end of all of it is, is that we are glorifying the name of Jesus, that we are lifting the name of Jesus. So he says, in the midst of all of this difficulty and hardship and all this, guess what? I'm going to use this and it's going to be good for you because I want the best for you. Because what we're seeing here is that God loves us, right? And he's for us. And so he's like, we're going to use this and we're going to make it work. And this ties back, even if you read that verse, uh, there's, there's kind of this, this view that's actually really cool and intriguing. It says, the spirit makes all things, even this is from Luther. So in case you're wondering where I'm getting this, this spirit makes all things, even though they are evil, work together for good. Uh, and in recent times, a number of scholars have taken up this view that, that, that kind of Luther has first presented. And they understand the he in there, um, that is the subject to the verb, works together to mean the Holy Spirit. And it speaks back then to verses 26 and 27, which we didn't read. And so just know that it's just talking about the Spirit interceding in our behalf and, and, and praying over to say, listen, so as, as the Spirit is going, you know what, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna work all of this together. It's just really cool connection and flow that no matter what it is you experience and walk through, the Spirit goes, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna intercede with the Lord and God is gonna, we're gonna work this for our good. Cool? So then let's look at 29 and 30. 
What all is going on here? So I know this, that, that in this room, we're going to have differing opinions on how we translate and look at this. And that's fine. It's perfectly fine. Um, some of you may go, I don't have a clue what this is talking about. And that's perfectly fine. And that's acceptable. That's a reasonable response to what's being said. Uh, what does it mean that God foreknew who is predestined? Am I predestined? Oh no, if I'm not, right? There's this whole kind of thing, like the understanding and creating and walking through all of this. So there's, there's primarily kind of like two schools of thoughts as you walk through this, and we're not going to go through all of the different theological studies and understandings, right? We're not going to trace it back to like theological forefathers here, understand. So there's essentially two points of view. Um, and I get asked often where I stand on those. And I would say this, I kind of fall somewhere in the middle. Um, so they'll be like, are you, are you like reformed Calvinist or are you Arminian? And I go, I'm a Carminium. A calv arnium. I don't know. Like I just, I'm making up words now because I really don't. I'm sure there is some theological stance that I could adhere to and be like, yes, that's it, right? Uh, I don't have a name for it. I believe this. I believe that that the grace of God is is, is stronger than than extreme Arminianists believe, right? Uh, and and the thought that you sin once, you're cast to hell, right? I don't agree with that. Uh, I believe that grace is sufficient and that in the working of the believer through the process of sanctification, that there is a continual work and a growth that that takes place. But I do believe, I'll say this, that a person can willfully walk away from grace and they can choose to say, you know what? I'm done. And I want to pursue selfish ambitions. So that's, that's kind of where I fall, right? So I'm in this odd camp of uh, not really having a school of thought to adhere to on either side. So understand this. Uh, as we walk through this. So foreknew, what does it mean that God foreknew? Here's what it means. God knows all things, right? So I think we can agree on that statement that God is aware of all things. He knows all things. He sees all things and nothing is catching him off guard at any moment or time, right? God is omniscient. He is uh, just all knowing in his infinite wisdom. He sees all that will be and all that is to come. And he steps outside of our realm of time and he can even look forward. He can look backwards. He can look in the moment, right? So it's that, that Kronos and, and, and Kairos time, right? And so he's in both ends, right? So, so he foreknew all these things. So when it says that, the, that those he foreknew, guess what? You are included in that, he, on those that he foreknew. In fact, every human being on the planet ever is included in the camp of those he foreknew because God knows all things and he sees all things. And so here's my take then on, on predestined. I believe that we were all destined for salvation. Like that was the purpose of the cross in the first place. And if it is a limited work, then, then it removes a lot of understanding of scripture that Jesus died for all people. So I believe that, that he foreknew us all and that we were all predestined, that we were all supposed to then be uh, called and in, 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 in then receiving salvation and walking in accordance to Christ, right? And so that is how I see that. And then those that are called, guess what? The spirit is calling and we've talked through this. It is the spirit that draws us, right? And this is his work that he is calling and he is pulling and he is drawing. And so then it continues, right? Even in, like I said, in the conviction side of things that the spirit says, hey, now that you're mine, let's keep pulling, let's pull you back over here, right? Let's come back into alignment. And so it's those that when we return, return to the call of Jesus, then we are justified and then ultimately glorified. And that's how I interpret that, right? And, and some would call that the golden chain and this and that, but we're not going to get into all the theological studies and debates with all of this stuff, but just understanding 
So that's kind of how I see it. That's kind of how I walk through it. Because I look at scripture in a full wide scope of things, in, in, in an understanding of all, of all scripture. You're kind of trying to bring it together. Does that mean I know everything? Absolutely not. Uh, it, does that mean that I'm ever going to know it? Absolutely not. Um, I know that I have a limited ability in my uh, reasoning and my understanding of things. But, so that's kind of how I see that, though. It's this, that as we turn to it. So, so you have to see and notice the, the language that Paul is using. These are all past tense terms. We've not yet been glorified, right? We just talked about like this present suffering uh, isn't equal to the glory that we will get. So, right? so the glorification is coming at the end. And so I think that in this moment, Paul's actually taking a step to look back on almost in the sense of I'm going to take a step to move to the end of time and kind of reflect back on those that, that God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified and he glorified, right? And it's his completed work. And, and that completed work has not happened yet for all believers because we're not all we're here, right? We're not in heaven yet. There's not been this glorification yet. And so we see this process of, of, of growth and moving forward. And so all of that to say this, that the work of the spirit means that we can walk free from discouragement of this world. That if we've been justified, we can be encouraged that we will be glorified. And that we will be with our Father in heaven. And that the present suffering of this earth has no weight or bearing. So then the last bit, um, freedom from separation. And so here, Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then one of the greatest verses, and if you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, highlight it, live by it, walk in it. Know in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. There's no condemnation because we share in the righteousness of God. And the law cannot condemn us. There's no obligation because we have the Spirit of God who enables us to overcome the flesh and live for God. There's no discouragement because we share the glory of God, the blessed hope of Christ's return. There's no separation from the love of God. I'll invite the worship team. super quick kind of synopsis here. Christ died for us. 
God has justified us. Christ intercedes for us. And he loves us. I just want to hit for a second just on verse 37. We're more than conquerors. One of the ways to look at that is you kind of interpret the wording and the language there is this, that we're essentially, we're super conquerors. Or the thought is that he brings victory after victory after victory after victory after victory after victory. There's no hardship. There's no struggle. There's no difficulty in your life that you can face that is ever going to cause God to withdraw his love from you. There's no height nor depth. There's no place you can go. There's no, there's no vast, the place in the vast expanse of the universe that you could find where the love of God won't reach you. There's no place. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. His love is greater than any love you've ever known. His love just continues and continues and continues and continues. He brings victory after victory after victory after victory. You may go, man, you don't know how hard my life has been. You don't know how to be. Listen, it's okay. He still loves you. His love is still there. His love is still there. One of the arguments that I hear from people all the time, um, and I wish it wasn't all the time, but I do hear it often, is you don't know what I've done. And I go, you're right, I don't. Uh, I don't know what you've done. And their argument then is, because I've been so bad, God could never love me. And I go, you're wrong. And trying to help people to get from the point of, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, to the point of going, I know, and so does God, and it's okay. It's a difficult transition for a lot of people to make. But, but hear me today. If you're in that camp, said, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know what I've said. You don't know how. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Plain and simple. That's where, that's, that's, the, that's the end of the story. It's like, great. Grace is sufficient. God's grace is enough. It will cover. It will cover. It will cover. It will cover a multitude of sins. The man we're reading from is a guy named Paul, and he himself said, oh, what a wretched man I am. He wasn't good. Think about this. Uh, uh, There are, are other men and women in the Bible who still did horrible things. One of Jesus' disciples tried to, tried to kill a man and he's not very good and he cut his ear off, right? And it's just like, it's not good. You know, this isn't good, right? And what happened? What did Jesus do? He picks a man's ear up and, and was Peter cast out? No, he wasn't. In fact, he was reconciled and, and redeemed. And it's just, this, there's nothing you can do that's gonna cause God to withdraw his love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.